that's the most dangerous place to be is to think you know it all. I always just try to go into problems being curious. I'm always just like, I wonder if I can solve this. I wonder if we can figure this out. And really, it's not me. It's not about me. It's me and the athlete or me and the athlete and the coach. And it just becomes this problem-solving thing and a curiosity and, and we're communicating, hey, Brian, how do you feel with this? Do you, okay, do you understand? Yes. Is that what you sense too? You know, and you're working with the person to get the outcome. You're, you're just the facilitator. You're, it's not about, you know, the ego has to go away. That's Jonathan Pierce. And this is episode 79 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs> What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and I've got an awesome guest and a great conversation to share with you for this week's episode of the podcast. I recently sat down with my good friend, Jonathan Pierce, who I met in 2007 when we both competed in the National Club Cross Country Championships in Westchester, Ohio. Jonathan placed third overall that day to help Zap Fitness win the team title, and let's just say that I finished way, way back in the field. Anyway, Jonathan had a great running career. He competed collegiately at Stanford, where he was an All-American steeplechaser, and then he ran professionally for Zap Fitness and later the Mammoth Track Club until 2011, representing the United States at the World Cross Country Championships in 2008. And for as good of an athlete as Jonathan was, he's an even better physiotherapist, and I can personally vouch for that as he has treated both me and my wife numerous times over the years. Since 2012, he's worked with some of the top athletes in the world, including national champions, world and Olympic medalists, world record holders, and elite CrossFit competitors. A few years ago, he opened Kinetic Performance, a multidisciplinary sports rehab and performance center in San Diego, where he and his staff treat everyone from Olympic medalists to everyday athletes who just want to stay healthy. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation from Jonathan's running career and his trajectory as an athlete, who influenced him and what he learned along the way, to his current career path and the steps that led him down it. We talked about competitiveness, how it spills over into different areas of his life and knowing when to turn it down. We got into the importance of mentorship in his life and the advice he'd give his younger self. He also provides some actionable takeaways for any athlete who wants to stay healthy and a ton more. Let's leave it at that and dive right in with Jonathan Pierce. All right, Jonathan Pierce, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you, Mario. It's great to be here. It's great to be here in your new facility, Kinetic Performance's new facility in San Diego. And it's really wild for me because seven years ago, not when I first met you, it was five years after I first met you, but I was getting treated on a, I wouldn't say a throwaway table, but like, a you know, one of those, yeah, yeah, like one of those temporary tables that you had set up in your living room in North Park. And here we are in, a, I don't know how many square feet, but I mean, this place is massive. <laughs> um, it's 10,000. So, so congratulations uh, <laughs> Thank you. on that growth over the last seven years. But let's just start with where we are, kinetic performance. Sure. What is this place? So Kinetic is, this is really, you're, you're catching us right when we moved in. We're only four months into being in this in this space, but it's essentially a kind of a multidisciplinary sports rehab, sports performance uh, facility. And I've been working on this project for a long time. And I think kind of when we first met, I even then had a little bit of a vision of this, but really we're a 
you know, we have a 4,000 square foot gym out there with, you know, weight and racks and sleds and turf. And, uh, we've got a biomechanics lab, which you just got to see. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of treatment rooms and different, uh, spaces for practitioners to work. So I've got acupuncturists here. We've got sports massage. We've got different kinds of massage therapists, a cranial sacral guy, a woman that does some more, uh, sports oriented stuff. And then a guy that does, you know, deep myofascial work. We've got, um, let's see, eight trainers in various capacities. Some of the trainers do more personal training. Some do more specific coaching, like in weightlifting. And some some do sports-specific training, like baseball and track and field and things like that. And then we've got a number of manual therapists and people like myself that do active release techniques and a bunch of other manual manipulations specific to sports injuries. So, so. it's a pretty holistic approach sure. to yeah. training and keeping oneself healthy. That's right. And we have we have other things. We have like a, you know, we have whole rehab and recovery area for for people to use Normatec boots and to do foot exercises. And we have um, a, a low-level laser, which is different than a cold laser. It's more more powerful, also more expensive, uh, to treat, you know, the kind of the cellular level uh, of injury cycles or injury problems in soft tissues and bones and that, are, that sort of thing. And um, we're working on more projects. I'm working on bringing in some other types of services as well, so maybe some nutrition and um, definitely some on the, on the psychological side, especially for athletes. Let's go back to... The- the vision of all of this. Could you have ever imagined this is what you would have or what you would have created, say, (laughs) 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Like, let's just kind of go back to that part of the story here. Right. Well, no, the answer is no. I, I couldn't see it like this because I don't know. This is this is very real and it's 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 big and it's fun. It's a it's a massive project. It's really good. You know, this is what I've sunk probably the last five years of my professional life into getting ready for something like this. Um, so the answer is no. I couldn't have seen it playing out quite like this. And I mean, we're sitting in a basically a soundproof room that's set up for media. And so, like, I didn't anticipate having a media room. I don't even think media was a thing when I started practicing. So, uh, so those things. But, um, but on the other side of the coin, I could kind of foresee it maybe ten years ago because I knew I wanted to work. I I kind of had this feeling that um, I'd seen enough athletic injuries, enough people getting hurt, and I really felt that I w- was drawn towards working on maybe an alternative solution to some of those problems. So I kind of I guess I kind of saw that as a, as a potential thing. And, and about ten years ago was when I met really influential people like Dan Paff. I spent a lot of time with Dan, starting in uh, 08, 09, and and Terrence Mahan. Uh, who's actually here with his group training out of here and doing a lot of things with us collaboratively. Uh, so I met, I was more around those guys and Justin Whitaker, uh, Chris Vincent up in LA. He's a great chiropractor. So I started to be around those kinds of people. So I kind of was envisioning where I wanted myself to go, but just, I don't know. I think you just started down a path and you're, you hopefully have a vision of where it can lead in a sense of it, but maybe you don't. I don't know if I would have seen it this tangibly. <laughs> when did you first start thinking about physiotherapy and human performance as a career path for yourself? Uh, 2003 or two. Because you're what, 34 now? I'm 36. 36. Yeah. Oh, so you're yeah. only a year younger than me. I thought yeah. you were like three years younger yeah, than me. Yeah, yeah. So reason. I don't know. Not, okay. We're about the same age. So we're yeah. both old men. That's right. Getting getting the aches and pains. And what spurred <laughs> that interest for you? Uh, well, I remember when I went to, I remember I got my, 
my paperwork, my training program from, from Stanford my, before my freshman year. And I remember in there, they gave us like these handouts on how to use a foam roller. And, you know, Vin, Vin was fairly innovative, I think, in his time. He still is innovative, but Vin was very innovative in that he, he kind of fig- – he was good at testing things and he figured out systems to get a whole team to function better, right? That's what he did at Dartmouth and then he took it to Stanford and then he got it better and better and he had better resources too. So he was able to, tr- you know, build. But Vin got us all to work with SMI, this um, sports medicine um, place in Palo Alto. And you actually, you know, SMI. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I remember getting this packet of stuff and I had never seen a foam roller. I didn't know what the hell it was. And I was like, well, what is this thing? And then, and then in there, I remember reading the, the letter from him and Mike Riley. And there was a note in there at the bottom that said, if your stretching and mobility routine is under 30 minutes per day and your goals are to be at a high level in college, your program is probably inadequate. And I'll never forget that. And I, I thought about it and I was like, well, okay, that's the formula, 30 minutes a day. So then I just started, and I, at first I didn't even know 30 minutes of exercises really that were mobility and stretching. So I just had to make things up and I just started trying stuff. And I remember like even being on family trips and like my aunts and uncles making fun of me like, oh, when are you actually going to start running? You're just doing all these exercises, you know? And then I would go run an hour. So I think I was always into that. And and then when I got to college, I like started playing with it more and more. And then I, we started getting therapy at SMI and I would ask a lot of questions. And then I think that really spurred my interest. Was there ever a moment or an injury that you experienced as an athlete during your time there at Stanford where you had to go in and actually get hands-on treatment. That was another light bulb that went off for you? Yeah, sure. So my fifth year of college, I got pretty injured. I got um, a, a capsulitis, a big toe problem in, in like a basically a turf toe. And, and I kind of ran the cross-country season through it. And I was on a ton of meds and just kind of limping through and in a lot of pain. And I ran like shit. And then, uh, and I got anemic from all the, all the ibuprofen was like diclofenax and stuff. And so then I got an MRI and I had a stress fracture in my sesamoid and I, you know, got to go meet with Amal Saxena and he gave me some good guidance and, you know, so we did a bunch of different things and I had to take time off. And then I worked with the training staff and uh, we had a young trainer named Mark Moreno. I don't know what he's doing now, but Mark is, Mark was an awesome guy and he didn't know everything to do, but he just tried really hard. And so like, Mark probably saved my fifth year in the sense that like he gave me something to focus on and I was like pretty upset. I was like potentially vying for a chance to win the steeple, you know, in outdoors. And um, I'd been seventh the year before and there were, I was the third returner and I was like, I can, I can run 10, 15 seconds faster and maybe win. Um, but then I didn't end up having much of a senior season, but at least I did get back. I, I won, you know, ran well a couple of races and we won the big meet. That was fun, but, um, I got re re injured. So, so I think those, that experience of being injured and then having somebody that actually cared versus like maybe a coaching staff that didn't care, that was pretty, uh, influential for me. And Um, you didn't go right from Stanford into learning how to do this stuff professionally. You continued with your running career. You went to Zap Fitness, ran there for a few years and you were with Mammoth Track Club for a little while. At what point of that journey for you did you realize that, okay, at some point I'm going to be done running and I'm going to start taking the steps toward becoming a physiotherapist? I don't know if that's the right word, but that's essentially what you do. Sure. And working with certainly high-level athletes and also just everyday athletes who want to stay healthy. And I want to get into kind of the difference between those two things here in a little bit. Sure. So, yeah, so I, I guess in about 2009, 2010, I was running professionally, but 
I had moved from Zap to Mammoth, and Zap we had good support, and Pete and Zika were great, and we I had Reebok some Reebok support and all that. Then I left that support network. I then it was right in the middle of the financial crisis. No shoe companies were giving contracts to people like me, especially coming off of being hurt. I had a, I got a sacral stress fracture at the trials in '08, and so because I got that injury and didn't run well, basically missed a whole year. It was really hard to get much support, so I was kind of struggling. And I wasn't running that well. I really was feeling more and more the pressure cooker of trying to be a pro runner and trying to compete against guys that had more resources, which it was my fault for not having resources. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was, you know, nobody should feel sorry for me. I just didn't deserve it. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of started to see the writing on the wall and Terrence and I would have a lot of conversations and I would spend, I would spend a couple hours per day extra in the gym with Terrence, just watching him coach people through strength stuff and watching the therapist work and, you know, learning everything that I could. And I kind of, I think Terrence kind of sensed that I was like good at that stuff and liked that. And so he would put more energy into developing me and teaching me. And then, um, and it was just, it got to the point where my ex-wife was running really, really well and it was running really well. And it was almost like more of a burden for me to be competing and and it was better for me to be in more of a support role. And I, Terrence and I kind of worked it out. So I was going to help the group and I was kind of the de facto <laughs> journeyman guy. I just did everything. You know, I would drive the van. I would pace do the water bottles, pace workouts, right? And, you know, do everything. And once I started going to school, then I started doing therapy. And I basically then had a case study of, you know, 12 good you know, world-class level athletes to work with as I was finishing my studies and, you know, uh, learning more of a skill set. So, so that gave me a big advantage once I did start practicing. And is that how you were thinking about your path forward was I want to work with elite level athletes like myself who need this kind of treatment and don't always have the access to it. Or were you thinking bigger than that where you're like, okay, there's probably not a lot of money in this, or maybe there is, if that's what I pigeonhole myself to, but there are are other runners, other types of athletes who just need this sort of stuff in their day-to-day and week-to-week routine? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both of those. I I think I had I had this idea even when I was a kid, I was terrified of the idea that I might not be around sports. So I did everything I could. I kept trying sports until I could do a sport in college, basically, and and kind of get out of upstate New York, I guess. Uh, and so I, I found a way that I could get out of upstate New York and I ended up getting to go to Palo Alto, which is great. And then, and then I really didn't want to be done with sports then either. So I was like, I need to get good enough so that I, you know, can go to the next level. And I really wanted to try to make the Olympics. So I was focused on that. And I kind of, you know, all through college, I paid attention. What were the, the key things that the guys that were really good on my team or really good in the NCAA, what were they doing? And I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do what these other guys that didn't end up as well did, you know? And so a lot of that's avoiding injury, uh, but other things too. So I think, uh, I always wanted to be around sports. And so like I saw this, once I started deciding on a career change, Terrence and I talked about it. It was like, well, look, we're like five months of the year in Mammoth, four months of the year in San Diego, you know, a couple months in Europe. Like this is like, you know, what are you going to do? And so my ex-wife at the time was still in the group and traveling and, and competing at a high level. And he was like, you pretty much got two options. You can do therapy or you can coach. He's like, I can help you build a coaching business online. I've done that before. You want to do that? And I was like, I don't really like writing programs. And I was like, I really like this therapy thing. I think that's what I want to do. And he was like, okay. He's like, well, what do you want it to look like? I'm like, and I remember we had this conversation. We were standing somewhere and I said, you know, I think I want to have a place like, I'd like to have my own clinic. Um, but I'm like, I still want to do elite stuff and I like traveling and I like being at the meets. So, and that's what I was doing. I spent three years being on the Diamond League circuit and going to meets and all that. 
Um, and I was also getting a chance to, to be backstage at, you know, the world champs and do see some cool stuff and learn from some of the best people. So, um, so that really helped and that kind of solidified, but then I noticed a lot of the best people were also clinicians. They had a clinical practice to go back home to. And I think I kind of had the sense that that was how you got the best of both worlds. You got some stability and you, uh, got a lot of repetitions from the everyday people that you needed to treat and help. And then cool opportunities would pop up alongside exactly. that. And you get to do the fun play stuff. <laughs> so who's coming through your door here at Kinetic on a daily basis? Oh man, we've got everything. So we've got, and, and it depends on, you know, we have, I'm really proud that we have a great team. Like I, I have an awesome team and I have people that work only with like older population people, maybe people that, you know, have the back pains that, and they're in their fifties or whatever. They need a safe way to train and stay fit or they need to work out safely. We've got lots of people that come just to, to get acupuncture and they could be all kinds. They could be people in pain, people off a car accident, people that are athletic, you know? And so, so we've got that. And then we've got a lot of high end athletes. We've got 12 to 14 year old kids that are getting ready for baseball season in there doing strength and conditioning three days a week with the hip hop blaring. And then we've got like, you know, like, um, all, all, just your, your recreational athletes and the people like you and me that still love to get out there and run and want to be healthy or maybe get banged up doing so. So, and then we have super high end, like, you know, this summer I've had, you know, world record holder in the hurdles come in. I've had, you know, another Olympic champion. She's all, that woman's also Olympic champion. Another Olympic champion come in. You know, we have good people coming and, and some people travel in to see us. Uh, we had a Canadian woman who's a hurdler spend the last two weeks here. And so she's a good example of that's a, a bread and butter case. Like she's been hurt off and on for years. Uh, and she's not really on track to make the Olympics as it stands, you know, but if we get this thing turned around and I think we will, then she can basically go spring loaded into the Olympic year and probably make the team. Cause she's good enough. She's just, being on that injury bus where you can't get off the bus. <laughs> yeah. so But pretty wide range of athletes. Mm-hmm. And sure. on the high end of it, you're an integral part of their journey towards something like the Olympics. Mm-hmm. On the other end of it, you're a very integral part of someone just being able to get out the door sure. and do what they love to do sure. on a yeah. daily basis. And that's that's really rewarding. I learned, you know, I, I've been in other scenarios where I really only had to take care of like a handful of pro athletes. And I, I found that it wasn't the most fulfilling thing for me. Like I, I'm really, the last couple of years of my career, I've started to focus more on how do I make the biggest impact and not just like, like I'm pretty comfortable with, uh, my skill set, I, I want to grow it. I want to become better. You know, I still have a long ways to go to be a better practitioner and, and maybe be more world-class. But I'm, I'm comfortable with being able to solve problems, you know, day to day. Um, so now I'm more focused on like growing my team and building this, building this facility so that we can have a bigger impact and we can work with everybody and we have different price points. You know, we're not all a flat rate service here. So like if you're, you know, if cash flow is an issue for you, we've probably got someone that can see you that can fit your budget, but is also high level. And and we have different experience levels to kind of match the supply and demand of, of people. But I'm really big on not being restrictive and, uh, and I love my vision when I started connecting. Uh, about three years ago, I started doing the business planning and building. And my vision was always like the 55-year-old lady with frozen shoulders sitting in the waiting room next to an Olympic champion. That was what I told myself we were going to have. So, and we have that. Here we are. <laughs> uh, there's a lot that I want to come back to as sure. it relates to what you do here. And maybe sure. even we can get into some practical takeaways for people who are listening to this and want sure. to stay healthy. But let's talk about your athletic career for a while because it's pretty impressive. I think it's pretty impressive on its own, <laughs> the level that you got to in running. You touched on it a little bit here um, over the course of this conversation so far. 
but let's go back to the early, early days. You said you loved sports from the time mm-hmm. that you were a kid. Was running your first love or were you involved in something else, traditional ball sports or yeah. whatever it may have been early on as a kid? Well, you were a team sport guy too, right? Yeah, I yeah. played basketball, baseball, exactly. soccer growing up, but then basketball was my, my love through high school. Right, right. I was the same. I wasn't any good at basketball. I was like, I think I played like one year or something, but I was I was really into baseball. I loved baseball. And I, I still, I go to Padres games and I have a buddy who works for the Dodgers. He's, he's a really good therapist for the Dodgers and I'm like... So I'm like, oh God, if I could, I go to those Padres games and I'm like, man, if I could have been a big league player, but you know, I wanted to be a hockey player or a baseball player or something like that. I loved ice hockey and baseball. And then I liked soccer as well. I was probably the best at soccer until I found that in the running part of soccer practice, I excelled and then, then that took off. So I kind of figured running was better. And so I got to running late. Like I really started running my sophomore year only an indoor track. And I was like, I made it to the state meet, but I was like last in the slow heat. So, But was it that success that you saw like in soccer, maybe doing the running drills? You're like, oh, I'm faster than everyone out here or I can last longer than everyone out here that was appealing to you? Or was it something else about running that got you hooked early on? Or maybe it took a while. Well, I, I also did, I guess I was sort of into running. I knew maybe I had a, a talent for it. We, my mom used to run road races and 5Ks and stuff. And in the summer, there was this series of three races, one in June, one in July, one in August, that was put on by the guy who would become my high school coach. So he would put on these races. And, and um, I remember my mom going. And I remember when I was a little kid going to these races and just watching. We would just watch her run and finish. And then I started to watch the fast guys coming in. And these you'd see these skinny, strong, ripped dudes and they just would be running with no shirt on. They'd just run through and they'd be way ahead of everybody. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I was impressed by it. And then I started running the one-mile fun run that happened before. And I remember one year, my sister had to go to the bathroom. So we had to take her to the bathroom and then we missed the start of the race. And I was so mad because we were way behind. <laughs> and I was just miserable the whole time because I was like, I don't want to run in the back of this race. And I was pissed. And I, I think I was just always very competitive as a kid. And then the next time we went, I was like, okay, we're going to be early and I'm going to try to win. And then I, I think it was maybe the next year, but I did win the kids one mile. And I remember being really happy with that. So I think that was my first real taste of running success. And then you're right, the soccer helped a lot. And I think success begets success, right? And um, that's just a rule in life. So I think I was, I was probably getting um, a lot of positive, you know, feedback with running, but you know, I just, I also just really wanted to compete. And I remember really loving being able to compete hard in high school. And that, that got me better quickly. I just started, I kind of figured out, I learned how to work hard from a young age. My parents were hard workers. So Running was like an easy thing. Like you could work hard and you couldn't be limited by anybody else. I liked that. Where does your competitive streak come from? <laughs> I don't know. Probably probably my parents, partly, you know. And um, Does it spill into parents. other areas of your life outside of athletics? Oh, yeah. Well, business is really <laughs> just another competitive game, right? Like so, so like now, you know, I'm like a businessman with good hands, I guess. And uh and, and so like you have to be competitive, you know? And so it's like that fine balance of like patience and aggression, patience and aggression. And that's kind of like training, but it's like that every day for me in terms of like, you know, I, there's always parts of the business that you don't like. It's kind of like whack-a-mole and just like running training, you're always trying to improve, you know, that you're never happy with like your current state of fitness. What if it can be a bit better? And uh, I think that is, you know, really a lot of what it is. And, you know, that could become obsessive too, and that's not good. But, uh, but I think like competitiveness is, is just trying to be better with yourself. It's all relative to yourself, you know? And so for me, like 
with running, you know, I was like, I love the idea of like just becoming better and trying to find ways to chisel that, that PR down another notch or a second or five seconds or whatever. And then I, and now, you know, I'm competitive with, I'm competitive with trying to be, it could be anything. It could be like, okay, I've got these three guys that are not, not performing as well. The revenue is not as good as they can be. Let's fix it. And then I have to figure out like, do I need to be more aggressive or do I need to be more patient? Or is it like, can I show some aggression and then be patient and see how that plays out? There's a little bit of that in there, I think, you know? So it's almost like when your competitive running career wrapped up, you needed to channel that Uh competitive energy into another avenue. And for you at this point of your life, seems to be the business side of things. Yeah. And also like as a therapist, like, you know, I'm really good friends with a woman named Beverly Kearney, who you should interview for your podcast because she's amazing. Second time her name has come up. Yeah. Uh, you need to interview her. Okay. Well, I'll get you connected, but she's a really good friend of mine an advisor and, um, and we work together a lot. I, I treat her cause she's had a lot of, you know, physical, uh, injuries from a car accident. And then, um, and then I've worked with a lot of her athletes as well and, and her coaches because she coaches coaches now really. Um, <clears throat> so Beverly always talks about how, you know, to be competitive with the problem is important. And I think that's really, really true. I've always kind of seen myself as I love getting a chance to solve the problem and, and like, like I'm going to make this problem whether it's an injury or like let's say somebody's foot is just constantly been a injury in the past or let's say you know every time they get to a certain training volume they fall apart okay that's the problem so we need to fix that and i just like let's pull out all the stops until we get it right so i love that and um and then in business yeah same thing like let's you're just trying to continually improve competitiveness can get us into trouble as you alluded to a minute ago it certainly is for me in my athletic career i know it has for you over the course of yours how did the lessons that you learned from that in your athletic career, how have they translated now to growing your business and other areas of your life where competitiveness may get you in trouble? Yeah, well, I think you got to find ways to to tone it down, you know? And like, so for me, um, like I can be competitive like with a problem as a therapist or I can be competitive like in a business problem or, or just competitive in, in trying to build something that, and maybe that's new or innovative. I love that kind of stuff. But I gotta, you got to kind of mellow it out and take the edge off. And so I think, um, I think it's just keeping in mind the, big, the bigger picture and being humble. And there's always like constant reminders of like, some of the smaller things that are, that are important, you know, and I think like staying grounded and being in touch with your family and, and being connected to, I guess the people that matter to you and having a spiritual sense of things I think is important. Um, I think, you know, people, you know, if you have a relationship and you have someone to kind of key off of and bounce ideas off of, but support and lift up, I think that helps a lot. So I think those things are, are good ways. I, I see, uh, you know, for me, like I think staying humble, like you have to call it always like kind of remember where you've been and remember you, you might be having a bad day or you might be having a hard, maybe you're, this problem isn't getting solved and you're being too aggressive. But then it's like, well, is this really that big of a deal in the long run compared to where I was five years ago or 10 years ago? You Do you know? have a formal practice now where you'll actually have to hit pause in your day? Because you're a busy guy. I've sure. seen you in here and you're running around like sure. crazy from the time <laughs> you wake up till the time you go to bed at night. Right. Do you have to consciously like, John, stop yeah. and take a minute to process all of what's going on because you're becoming overwhelmed and you're kind of getting away and it's getting the best of you. 
Absolutely. I do that a variety of ways. I think, I think I've studied a lot of successful people, Mario, and I think, I mean, as you have too, I know, and you're, you're, this is something you're really interested in, I, I, I know, from reading all your writing um, and listening to the podcast. I, I think you got to find what works for you, but I use a bunch of different techniques. So I do, I do a lot of something called EFT tapping to kind of clear negative uh, things like, or things that are like you're afraid of, or you have negative emotions, or maybe you have a lot of anger towards something. I'll use this tapping procedure. It's a really great kind of mind body technique works based on acupuncture or acupressure meridians. Um, I do stuff like that. I do a little bit of meditation, but I don't do meditation in the conventional sense. I do more like kind of my own version of that. Uh, and I, you know, usually actually I have like a few minutes budgeted at lunch to do that and just kind of check in and slow down and kind of breathe and get grounded. Um, that stuff, I, I spend, a, I spend time every morning kind of like reading for fun and just, uh, and then thinking and writing down ideas and thoughts. And sometimes I'm writing down really targeted, you know, action items. And sometimes I'm just writing down like things that I'm grateful for, things that I'm, you know, that have gone really well or whatever. Um, and then, you know, like another one for me, like I have this, um, I have really great family. So just keeping in touch with my family is important, you know, like talking to my parents and seeing how they're doing and listening to what's going on in their lives. And, you know, being there for other people, I think is a really good way to actually like kind of disassociate yourself from the day to day, what you're doing, you know? Um, and then, you know, I have a, I have a wonderful goddaughter. She's, uh, she's three and a little bit more. My, her really good friends are here. And I, you know, I try to see her every Sunday and you spend time with a three-year-old and that really like changes your, <laughs> your no, it sense. Really, you it know? really does. I mean, Christine, my wife, who yeah. you also know, she yeah. and I have a godson who's a year and a half and fortunate that he and his parents live close to us and we can see him on a right. regular ba basis. And it's really grounding thing to be able to do that. Yeah. But it's also a nice, you know, reminder of what's important in life. So I appreciate you sharing all that. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the things for me. Those, I think that stuff's really important. And you have to, you have to always like kind of hit the pause and be mindful of where you are and, you know. Do we really have it that bad? <laughs> hey, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's Aftershocks. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones are super comfortable and sit outside your ear so you can safely listen to music, tune into this podcast, or even take a phone call while safely being able to hear what's going on around you. Best part about these headphones, for my money, it's the battery life. Aftershocks will last you six hours. That's a quarter of your day. Whether it's a long run or a long commute, Aftershocks headphones will go the distance. Most importantly, Aftershocks headphones sound great. They deliver crisp and clear audio and feature wide dynamic sound range, deep bass, and dual noise-canceling mics. Morning Shakeout listeners can save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, which includes everything you need for your next big run. You get bone conduction headphones to ensure safety and comfort, matching reflective sport belt to tote your phone and keys, a water bottle to stay hydrated, a shoe bag to keep your dirty shoes away from your clean clothes, and a cooling towel for lasting heat relief. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks endurance bundles, visit TMS. Dot aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. My thanks to Aftershocks for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Getting back to your trajectory as an athlete, was there a moment 
in your running career, maybe as say a high schooler, you ended up running collegiately at Stanford and had a successful career there where you tasted success for the first time and realized that you really did have some potential at this and could have a long career in the sport. Uh, yeah, probably a couple. The, the one that probably most comes to mind is my, my junior year. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know anything about like Foot Locker. I didn't know what it was. It was my first time running cross country my junior year in high school. And I was winning all these races. And my teammates were like, well, you need to go to Foot Locker. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And he's like, well, you have to go talk to your parents. Here's the, he ripped the, the advertisement out of the magazines. Remember those old magazine articles? Yeah, because or you couldn't ads. sign up online back yeah. then. Yeah, I know. And so, so he ripped it out of a magazine and gave it to me. And I took it home to my parents and I'm like, well, Matt McMurray says I need to run this race. And my dad was like, well, where's that? I'm like, I guess it's in New York City. And so, so we were going to... Like I had to like beg my parents to do it. It was on Thanksgiving weekend. It's not convenient. My, I have four siblings younger than me. Like we were going to have to leave the kids and my grandparents. And it was like a whole nightmare. So my parents agreed to do it. And we go down there and I had run really well the week before and the week before that. So the state meet at New York state meet, I ran really well. I was third my first season. And then I was um, fifth in the federation meet, which is all the schools, all classes. It's big deal in New York. Yeah. yeah, it's hard, hard race in Bowdoin Park, Poughkeepsie. And I was fifth there. And so, like, based on that, usually about four or five New York's kids go to Foot Locker every year. And so my coach is like, oh, I think you could make it. <laughs> so I went to Foot Locker, and I bombed. I got, like, 32nd. I got, like, side stitches. I was tired. I didn't manage the race well. I was stressed. And I finally, like, kind of the whatever it got to me that season i didn't i didn't it wasn't able to perform so then the next year i went back and i was prepared and i got second and i almost beat my pete mindle i was kicking him down but i got second and then i was like okay made now the I national championship yeah yeah and we had good people like molly huddle was on was on the northeast team with me uh uh the guy tim moore that went to notre dame yeah i remember tim yeah. moore had bobby long lockhart hair. won Selinsky was there that year so there was a lot of big names and that was like the defining moment for me like making Foot Locker after not doing well the year before i was like okay yeah i can do this let's go back to that 32nd place finish your junior year do you remember what that ride home was like <sighs> were you crushed or uh, indifferent i'd love to just get into your headspace during that time i was tired i remember being tired because it'd been a long season and i wasn't really used to what it was going to be like and we you know where i grew up is rural way north and we used to have bus rides like three to five hours every saturday early to run these races and then run and then and i just i hadn't managed i didn't know how to manage like your energy through a whole season of running like that and then running dual meets on tuesdays and, and doing that all season so i just remember being tired and i remember being mad like just and just feeling like i didn't have the preparation mentally to do what I needed to do. And I kind of like, I remember going out hard and being up front. And I remember the next year, the Foot Locker ad for all over the country was a shot of like in, in Bowdoin or sorry, in Van Cortland Park, when you're running, coming up to the mile, it, it all condenses. It's a big wide open field. You're running a mile loop in a field and then it's all condensing and then you're going to the backwoods, right? Yeah. You know it. And I remember 
Like that was the picture that they used for the marketing for the next year. The the same thing that he had ripped out to give to me uh, when I didn't know what it was. And you could see me right in the front and I'm looking across and there's like Charles Millone who made it and Brian Delpiez who made it or didn't make, I can't remember. All these guys that made it. Romaniak is there who ended up being my teammate at Stanford. Seton McAndrews was a teammate at Stanford. He He made it and he was there. These were all guys that I had been running right with in New York. And I'm like looking at them right there and I'm like there and then I didn't make it. And so that you was- You had to look at it for that whole I next season. For, but I looked at it for the whole season and I was like, I'm gonna, I put it on my wall and I'm like, that's not going to happen again or it will happen again, but I'm just going to stay up there. So uh, I think I, th- I think that car ride home to answer your question, I think I was just tired and I was just, I was mad. And I was, I remember just being mad and I, I was like, that's not going to happen again. We're going to fix it. So. And you committed to doing so. And obviously the next year, as you just described, right. finished second, you end up making the national championship. So at that point, I mean, you're one of the best runners in New York. You're one of the top runners in the country. I imagine schools were ringing the phone, recruiting you to come and run, and you eventually ended up at Stanford. So you're going to continue your athletic career. What was that like for you, thinking back to when you were a young kid, knowing that you just wanted to be an athlete, and now you're going to get that opportunity which not many seniors in college do right. to go and run at one of the top programs in the country. I, I think I felt I was really, yeah, I was just really excited about it and I was really grateful. I, I think you're right. Like I knew, I, I kind of knew what my classmates were doing and that most of like a couple of my classmates for the school I ran for, cause we had a merger. I had to run for a different school. My, my home school that I attended, uh, the main school I attended for academics, we didn't have running. We didn't have track or cross country. Anyway, my classmates that went to the school that I ran for, some of them were going to run in college, but one guy was going to run at West Point, uh, which is kind of a semi-serious program. And then a couple of the guys were going to run at small schools like Bowdens and you know D3s or new UNH. One of my teammates went to UNH and ended up is now a, one of the top Ironman pros in the world. Um, uh, he'll do Kona in two weeks anyway. But um, Matt Russell. Okay. Yeah, so he's he's one of my best friends, and uh, we grew up together, and we trained together. I didn't all. realize you guys went to school together. Yeah, That's so he wild. was in that terrible bike accident. That's right. Yeah, you should interview him too. Okay. Yeah, I I'll add it to the list. Yeah, I got I got a lot of hookups <laughs> for you. <laughs> he's kind of a runner, but he's a triathlete too. Uh, yeah. So so Matt was going to UNH, and so I knew like this was a big deal. Like I was going to get to go to Stanford, and like. I, I didn't even really know what Stanford was. And, and then I started seeing like Gabe Jennings and Michael Stember in the track and field news. And, and that was the heyday of yeah. Stanford. And you had yeah. the Housers, I believe, were there yeah. at the time. And yep. I remember, Don Sage had just won NCAAs yep. in the 1500 as like a sophomore. Yeah. So the magnitude of it all wasn't lost on you when you yeah. got there. Yeah, I, I think it, it all hit kind of last second. I remember my my high school coach told my parents in the summer – before my senior year, he said, you better be ready because it's going to get serious. And he, and they were like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, it's going to heat up. <laughs> like his life is going to change a lot. And, and he was right. You know, it just, it just changed. And, uh, but I, I, I was ready for it. I, I wanted, I'd always wanted a chance to go to the next level, like you said, and run more, or compete in some sport. And this was it. And I was going to get to leave kind of my small little town and go out on my own and do something cool and new. And, you know, so I think I was mostly just, I remember being really excited. And I, and I remember it was still a hard decision. I was getting recruited by other schools and William and Mary had been the first to recruit me and I was really into it. I got recruited by the Ivies, but I didn't want to go to a cold weather climate to train. So I wanted to move somewhere warm. And, uh, so yeah, it was a hard decision, but I, in the end, I just, I knew I could be the best version of me at Stanford. <laughs> Were you on scholarship there? At the end, I was. At the beginning, no. I had, you know, 
I, I grew up in one of the most economically depressed parts of the country. So we had some good financial aid, but, uh, but I, I did have an athletic scholarship full at the end. And when you got there as a freshman, did you feel this need to prove yourself? Oh yeah. Every day. Cause we had a, we had a stacked team. I mean, we had, uh, my first year we won NCAAs and cross and I was no, I was redshirting. And then I remember we had like, you know, nine guys in my class and I was one of the slowest having run like 905 for full two and 414 for full mile. And I ran like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would run pretty fast and, and I was like one of the slowest guys. So you, we had to like, I had to like prove that I could even just hang with my cohort, like my class. And then uh, there was, yeah, our the the training that we would do was insane. We would do these, you know, 10 to 12 by clay with a minute rest that were kind of like the Vin and uh, Andrew Gerard trademark kind of program. And it was like battle <laughs> trying to, like, can I just hang on to this third group? And like Louis Lucchini and Grant Rose and Don Sage, they're like just floating along above the ground up there with Ryan Hall. And like, we're just suffering back here and I'm just trying to hang on to the third group. And so it was hard. It was over, it was overwhelming in a way, but it made me, it made me really better. And then by the second and the third year, I got my footing and I started to really improve. At what point of your career, at Stanford, did you realize you wanted to continue running and take it to a professional level and see what you could do with the sport as you know a post collegiate athlete? I think in '04, I watched. '04 was the year that Grant Robeson made the Olympics, and he had come back. I think from running. I think he ran in '03. I think he ran 335 or 336 overseas, and I just remember thinking like that was mind-boggling. <laughs> and then, and then, but I was seeing like the Housers were still showing up at training, and the farm team was there. Gags was there every day with all his guys. So we had like role models to really see good where this could go. Yeah, it was a great environment. It was super awesome. It was dynamic. So like being around Matt Lane, who was running well at the time, right. the Housers, um, you know. Louis Lucchini was graduating and running well. And, you know, and Ian Dobson and Ryan Hall were just building to being ready to, you know, kind of take on the world. So we had like a great group and like Ian and Ryan were my good friends and I trained with them a lot. You know, I, re- I used to do morning runs with Ryan my, my sophomore year. And so just being around really good people, that just elevates you, you know, and that's kind of that, that I'll never forget that. I, I've been lucky to be on a lot of good teams. <laughs> you had a lot of good You've had a lot of good coaches throughout your yeah. career, high school, college, and even beyond. At Stanford, you had Vin Lanana, you had mm-hmm. Andy Girard. There was yep. a third coach Peter Teagan. in there, Peter Teagan, yep. uh, who did a great job at Stanford as well. What did you learn from each of those coaches in your time at Stanford? Yeah, uh, I learned Vin was Vin. I learned a lot from because um, I just, I loved Vin, and he recruited me, and as did Mike Riley because Mike Riley was the assistant. And um, it's funny. I remember the first time I met Mike Riley was at Foot Locker, and I was like not super happy to have this meeting because I I just not run that well at nationals. I was like okay, but not great. I was hot, and I remember I just wanted to go and play with my friends and go to the pool and you know chase the girls and whatever. And I had to have this meeting with Mike Riley and my parents, and I remember just being so didn't want about to be it. Yeah. And my mom was like, Oh, I loved him. I was like, well, I didn't like him that much. <laughs> and I remember, but then of course, Mike Riley is an awesome guy and I did, I really liked him, uh, in the end, but I was just in a bad mood. So, uh, but I got to, had to work on being a home, a better loser. But anyway, uh, I think with, you know, it was interesting. Vin, I learned a lot of little things from Vin. Vin knew how to like really 
cut through the the chase, cut to the chase and like really cut through bullshit with people. And he could just figure out how to solve problems. And I really was, I admired him for that. Um, and, and I, I found that Vin was a good technical coach. He knew how to coach us, but his instincts with reading people was really where he, I think is the best. And, uh, I, I just felt that he was really good at that. And like he, when he would tell you stuff, he would have this plan and he just had this way of like massaging your idea of the plan into you thinking that it was your idea and that you could do it. <laughs> Go so off on a little yeah. side tangent since yeah. we're talking about him. Were you surprised that he just signed on at university of Virginia to take yeah. over their track and field? Cross yeah, I was programs? surprised. And it's five years too late because my sister just graduated from <laughs> UVA <laughs> and I would have loved my sister to have a chance to run for Vin. Send that would have been just send him that text afterward. I will, t- I will text him that. I'm like, Hey, you're five minutes too late, buddy. <laughs> so, but yeah, I was super surprised by that. And, uh, it's too bad because UVA could be a great program and they've just been through kind of a, you know, it's been rough in terms of the coaching situation there. So one of my good friends is the sprints and hurdles coach there, Michelle Freeman. And I've done a bit of work with her and, and I've seen, you know, I, I know Michelle really, really well. And, and so I know kind of what the environment is like there before the culture. And I know what it can be. I think going forward, it could be very, very good. Yeah, so, so, but I'm surprised that he took the job. You know, yeah. it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens to that program specifically over the next few years, the impact that they have on the NCAA level, right. but also how Vin continues to be involved. I'm, I'm sure he's going to continue to be involved in the greater good of the sport and helping grow it and promote it in this country. So yeah, I was a little surprised by that as well, but also excited. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. We'll be, I'll be curious to see how he does. I have no doubt that he's going to be successful because Vince just, he just is successful at these things. He's great at getting things done. Well, he's been successful everywhere that he's been. And I think just having him there is going to attract people to Virginia who otherwise wouldn't have given the school a second thought. hundred percent. Like I can tell you when you're getting recruited by Vin and he gets on the phone, Oh, Jonathan Pierce. Okay. Well, what's the big holdup in you getting to Stanford? Well, oh, is that all that's holding you back? Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's break that down. And he just starts going and, and you, he's, he's great at, you know, really getting you to see how it is, you know, and that's, that's a, a skill. <laughs> how about the other coaches that you had at Sanford, Gerard and Tegan? Yeah. So Gerard was, Andy Gerard was awesome. He, he was recruiting me at William and Mary cause he had been there as right. the head and he had offered me a full ride and it was this really hard decision because I loved Andy Gerard and I felt that he could develop me into a great pro. And that's what kind of what I wanted uh, at the time. Even then, I did want to be a coming pro. So, so this was in high school. You were yeah, already thinking that. Yeah, I was thinking of that. Yeah, and I okay. was like, I, 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 you know, I wanted that. So, so I guess you're right. I was thinking then, but. But Gerard, I, you know, I knew that he could do that and I knew I would get a lot of individual attention at William & Mary. But it turns out Vin leaves. We were all heartbroken. And then the next thing, it, it turns out that uh, Gerard's coming to Stanford and it's like a great day for me. And everybody else didn't really know who he was. And I'm like, oh, this is great, guys. He's going to be a good coach. And he had been under Vin's system. He'd been at Stanford. You know, he'd been on the farm, quote unquote. So, so yeah, so from Gerard, like he taught me how to like – he gave me everybody like individualized plans and he, he would sit down with you in your office for 15 or 20 minutes at different points in the season and take you through your plan. Here's your plan. Here's your mileage. And, and he really cared. And I think <clears throat> that still matters to me today and how I manage like my team and my staff. Uh, and, it, and it's still, I think about that a lot. Like I make sure to, I sit down with people and I give them, okay, where are we at? Where's our plan? What are we doing? Well, what do we need to work on? Let's talk about 30, 60, 90s, all that stuff. Like that, that one-on-one time with someone that, you're, you know, you need help from, that's valuable. That's important. And then, um, 
And then he, he would, he just, he knew how to work hard. He got us to like work hard and just follow the game plan. And that was like really, really important. And that was my really good developmental years where we're like under Vin and then with him. Uh, and that's really what propelled me to be all American and to run well with uh, the next couple of years. How'd you end up at Zap after college? Well, um, I got hurt my fifth year, like I said, and right. so I got two stress fractures in my fifth year in my foot, both. And I learned a lot about injuries. I learned a lot about the feet. I learned a lot about what it's like spending three hours a day doing pool and rehab and bikes and MRIs and all that shit that you have to go through. And um, it was good learning. So, but I didn't have much of a senior season. I think I ran, I paced Ryan Hall in a 10K when before he ran his first London marathon. And Terrence had talked to Gerard, and the, or no, talked to... Edric and Tegan and they needed a pacer and I needed work because I was trying to run one more race after that. So I pay, I did a pacing job and then I ran really well in the big meet and then I was hurt again. So, uh, there was a lot of issues with, uh, return to return to play as the, as it's called and, and just managing injury correctly and, and communication and, uh, the coaching staff, all the changes we went through were really hard in terms of not having good, uh, solid communication down through and, um, and you know, we were used to a lot of hands-on coaching from Tegan and, or sorry, from, from Gerardo and from, uh, from Vin and, and Mike Riley. And then we didn't have that at all <laughs> after. So, so it was just a change and I got really injured and I didn't have a lot of options. I could have gone to McMillan. Uh, McMillan was awesome and he was recruiting Brett Gotcher and I both. And Brett and I wanted to go together somewhere. We were, we were best friends. Uh, we were best men in each other's weddings actually. And, uh, and in the end, Brett decided to go to McMillan, but I needed to make a more conservative play because financially McMillan was just getting started and it seemed risky to me. So mm -hmm. I chose Zap where the, the, it was more established. The support was better. And um, I really wanted to be on the West Coast, but I wanted to, and I wanted altitude, but I needed that. I needed to make a stable play where I felt like I could develop. So Zap was a great choice. And Pete and Zika were awesome. They, yeah. they recruited me and it was great to get to go there. How many years you were you in Blowing Rock with Zap? I was just there a year. Okay. Yeah, I was there a year and then I decided I wanted to be back on the West Coast and I was engaged and, you know, so we decided to move back to the West Coast and train in Mammoth. And that's right when we met. That's right when we met. The right? backseat of your ex-wife's car. Right. I think it was a Pontiac Bonneville, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Like yeah. We drove from Club Cross Country Nationals in Westchester, Ohio to Ann Arbor, yeah. Michigan, so you could go visit and then I think we sort of lost touch for a couple of years and reconnected here in San Diego. Yeah, about three years, probably three years or four years after we met. Yeah, it's crazy. When did you end up in Mammoth? Was that 2008 then? 2008, end of the year. Okay. Yeah, after the Olympics, we kind of packed up and moved out and uh, it was exciting. I, I, I had met Terrence before when I was in college as a fifth year because he was coaching Ryan and Ian and Ryan and Ryan Hall and Ian Dobson were really good friends of mine. So once he was coaching them, it was kind of like we were, I met him, but uh, I didn't ever know that I would get to run for him. I always wanted to. <laughs> what impressed you about Terrence when you first came in contact with him? Uh, I could just tell that Terrence was, Terrence is a really, he's a selfless guy. Like he really wants his athletes to do the best that they can. And, and he like, he'll pretty much do anything that, you know, he has control of to like help the athletes succeed. And I could just kind of tell that like the, the way that he handled all the details with Ryan and like little things. Like I remember he, after I paced Ryan and Ryan ran a pretty good 10K, I remember Terrence like thanked me for pacing him and he's like, let me take you out to dinner. And so he took me to dinner with him and Ryan and I got to hang out with them and catch up with Ryan, which was nice. And, um, 
it was Ryan's first year out as a pro, right? And uh, and I, he just he, he bought me dinner and he was just like, you know, he's like, thanks for helping. And, you know, he was asking me questions. And, like, it was just – I could tell that he's an inquisitive guy and, and he – he was he was on top of it. He was just paying attention, <laughs> and uh, I think that's a big deal, you know. So um, I could also tell, like, I knew about him. I knew he was young, but he was innovative. I knew he was he was working off of the the V Hill playbook, but he had a lot of other. I felt like he had a lot of other things that he was working on. When Anna and I were looking at different options of where we could go, because uh, she was going to leave Ann Arbor, Michigan, she wanted better climate to train, and it was too cold. Um, she had a great coaching situation there, but just the weather. Uh, when we decided to look around and we started talking to Terrence, it was Ian that had said, oh, you know, talk to Terrence. He'll give you good advice. And because I didn't think we would actually go there. But then the more he was talking to us, I was like, well, this guy's so smart. And and Anna really liked him too. And 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 it was kind of like as he was giving us advice on where we could go, he was selling himself. <laughs> and that's kind of how he is. He's more the guy, like he's not a salesman. He's not going to talk something that they don't want to do. But he's got, you could just tell that he had what it, he had the information that he needed, and I wanted all the information in his head. <laughs> and you ended up being part of that group for what, like four years? Yeah, three and a half close. years or so. Yeah, and then he took the UK job and moved right. to the UK, and um, and he and I, you know, he he moved away, and I I actually was um, I would see him from time to time at things, uh, and then you know the last couple of years when he was in Boston, I would see him a lot more. And then he started bringing groups out here to do training camps and he would bring his athletes to me. And so, you know, we've kind of always kept a relationship. Now we're super tight and, you know, he's here every day. Can't keep him out of here. (laughs) (laughs) What did you learn from him when he was your coach, just from whether it was an X's and O's standpoint or just a philosophical standpoint that was different from anyone else that you had worked with to that, that time? You just described how he's very attentive and, cared and he paid attention. Uh, and those are all very important things, but he's also set himself apart from others in different areas. Yeah. I remember just all the research that he did. Uh, he would, he was just prepared, right? Like I remember he built these spreadsheets of like looking at, he studied like what all the Ethiopians were doing. And then he was looking at their performances and he was looking at their training. And then he was looking at percentages of different energy systems that they were training and, and where in the year they were doing that. And, and so he was just, I, like that ability to research and to organize and to prepare is very, very important. And, um, I liked that. Um, I also liked, you know, I, I felt that he was really good at, um, he was good at taking on new ideas and then trying to assimilate new ideas into what he was already doing. So you can't just like leave everything out as you take on a new thing. You got to find a way to assimilate. And I felt Terrence is good at assimilating new information. He's constantly learning. And even now, like we'll be, you know, we have these monthly meetings, these round tables, and we invite a bunch of the local community of therapists and doctors. I have some sports med docs that I work with closely and coaches and people come and we'll share ideas or we'll have a presenter. And like Terrence loves that stuff. Like he loves to get up and speak or he loves to just come and he'll be asking questions. And so I think that continuous learning is really what is another thing from him that I learned and that's so important because it keeps you young. It keeps you, you're always testing your current hypothesis and tweaking it. What other coaches and physiotherapists did you come across during your time as an athlete at Stanford and 
afterward who had a big impact on you as it relates to not only getting you healthy at the time, but what you're doing now as a career. You mentioned earlier like Dan Paff and mm-hmm. you know a few others, but I'd love to dig into that a sure. little bit more and what it was about each of those individuals that had an impact on you. Sure. So like Dan, Dan would be one of the biggest ones because Dan has just done so much for our sport. I think a lot of people don't really, a lot of people are starting to know who Dan is. I think Altus and the success that Altus had, you know, or is having has propelled Dan a bit forward and that's good. He deserves way more recognition. Keeps a pretty low profile. Yeah, he keeps a low profile and he doesn't, he's a very humble guy and he doesn't, you know, ask for a lot of attention. Um, But Dan's been, Dan's been a pioneer and he's been an innovator in the sport and in multiple sports. You know, he's worked, people don't even know it. He's worked for NFL teams. He's worked for, you know, written rehab plans for the best baseball players in the world and the best golfers. And he's just, he's a brilliant mind and he's built, uh, he, he's mentored and developed so many coaches. And then he's also developed so many therapists because his big model is that, um, there's got to be a triad of, of, of there's got to be a team. And so there's the athlete and then there's the coach and then there's the therapist. And he feels that you can't have success with, you know, two parts of that triad only. You got to have all three. And, um, and so his thing has always been that we have to get, you know, therapists have to think like a coach some of the time. Not, they have to have their, their silo, of their discipline, right? But they got to be able to think like a coach and they got to be able to know enough of the sport. And then, and then vice versa, the coach has to know enough about therapy and injury to know when they're being injurious or to know when they got to ask the therapist, you know, and then the athlete has to know enough about the therapy to communicate well and communicate what they're feeling and all that. And then they have to be able to communicate with the coach too and, and know enough about their training and, you know, make their sport their kind of study. So, so I think like Dan's philosophy on that is huge. And, um, that's one of the things that propelled me into working with track and field. I work with some other things, baseball, I've worked with some really good baseball players and some really good NFL players, um, and weightlifters and triathletes and, you know, whatever, but I love track and field and, um, that's been my passion and my, my area. And like, you know, now I get to work with some of the best track athletes and a couple of great programs. And I think it's my in-depth knowledge of the sport and the dynamics of the sport and the culture that really I can trade off of that. And so I think that that overlap of the therapist, the coach and the athlete is a big thing from Dan. But like, you know, with Dan, Dan has like, I could tell a million Dan stories and just all the little things that I learned from being an athlete around him and then being at the center and being a therapist and, and then, you know, being, getting to be around him as later in life as I've developed as a career uh, path, that, that's been good too. So Dan's just, he's a guy, he, he cares deeply and he also has standards of excellence. And I think like that, those are the other two things, probably caring and having those standards. Other people that I've learned a lot from, Justin Whitaker was a tremendous mentor to me. He's a chiropractor and ART guy based up in uh, Portland. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's worked with like all the good Jamaicans, except for Usain, but he's worked with a lot of the best Jamaicans and, and worked with Nike for years. He's, he's tremendous. And he's from upstate New York like me. Um, Justin's just a really passionate, humble, hardworking guy, loves to learn. Um, and he loves to teach. He's a great educator. Um, I'm thinking of bringing him down here someday to do some stuff, collaborate maybe and teach my guys something. But, uh, Justin was great for me. He would, he loved to just show me stuff when I was beginning. And, uh, there was a guy named, um, Chris Vincent in LA who I learned a lot from in the beginning. Chris was like me, kind of like a mediocre runner after college, you know, did a lot of rabbiting like I did and then became a Cairo and he's really successful in LA with his business. So I, I, he, 
he was more businessy, whereas Justin was a high tech, technical level, you know, more of a, a skilled producer. And Chris is more of an entrepreneur. But I liked that they, I liked both of those, and I kind of wanted to be both of them, you know. And then uh, Sean Robeck, who you know, he was a chiropractor here in um, in Hillcrest. Uh, worked and, uh, for him for a while. Yeah, I worked with him for a number of years, and I learned a lot from Sean. He learned a lot from me. We did a, a lot building a business together. Actually, it was tremendous. But I learned a ton from him, and I would never be where I am without him taking a chance on me and giving me, giving me opportunities and, and trusting in me, you know, and I, I, we both kind of needed each other when we met and it was kind of like he, he needed my help and I needed his help and it worked out perfectly. So that was tremendous. Um, yeah, there's probably more. Jerry Ramajita is a big guy to me. Like Jerry's had a huge impact on me, even though he probably wouldn't know that, but, uh, but Jerry, uh, is I've worked with him closely on one or two athletes and, um, we, one of my athletes and I went to Canada to see him and meet with him cause I needed some help figuring out the problem. And it was just a really hard problem, very degenerative. And Jerry was able to give us great advice and he taught me some stuff that was going to turn, turn the corner. But then he also, he hooked me up with this guy that does stem cell in Canada. And next thing you know, she decided I'm going to do it. So she went and did the stem cell treatments and she's, she's a master's level athlete, but it was a great learning experience. And Jerry's the kind of guy, like I can call him he works for the warriors now so he's really big time but i can call him and ask a question and he'll help and just that willingness to help and to teach has really been great well how important is that mentorship in general when you're along your career path and how have you tried to pay it back now that you've established yourself here in san diego yeah i mean it's it's you can't beat it like you have to have that when you're young and starting because you're just you you don't have the repetitions you know it's like i don't know if you believe in the ten thousand hour theory or not but like I've got way more than 10,000 hours of, of hands-on in the trenches time now, but when, when you're starting and you've got like, you know, a thousand or 1500 hours, you just don't have, you haven't seen everything and you can't, you can't sense everything the same way. You know, a lot of what I do now, I just kind of know it intuitively as much as I have to think through it. And you don't have that ability when you're starting, everything's a thought process and you're, you're, trying to run the cost benefits on, well, if we do this or we do this and, you know, so you're stumbling through things. So do you be able to bounce things off and, and get help or get advice or get another eye on things? You send them a video. Hey, can you take a look at this? What are you seeing? And then you learn what they're seeing. You're like, how did they see that possibly? And then, then you start to see it though, you know? So, um, having that mentorship is like, I, I don't know how you could be a world-class therapist or maybe even world-class in any field and not have some sort of mentoring. I think that's probably impossible. Well, I think it's a fine line between having that confidence in yourself and trusting yeah. your stuff, whether you're a therapist, you're a coach, you're a teacher, you're leading a business, whatever it right. happens to be. But then also just, I guess it would still be a a confidence to know like that you don't know it all and you're that never you need, going to. <laughs> yeah, that you need a second set of eyes on things or, you know, just get some feedback on a decision that you've made because I think it's when you get to that point where you think you have it all figured out that you get yourself into trouble. That's the most dangerous place to be is to think you know it all. And I, I always just try to go into problems being curious. I'm always just like, well, I wonder if I can solve this. I wonder if we can figure this out. And really, it's not me. It's not about me. It's me and the athlete or me and the athlete and the coach. You know, like Beverly was here last week with a, with a top, top athlete, one of the best in the world, actually. Yeah, the best in the world. And, you know, she's dealing with a couple of things. And it was Beverly, me, and the athlete just like Dan's triad, just talking about the problem and working through it. Beverly, what do you see? Oh, you see that too? Okay, I don't like the way that hip is. Okay, let's fix it. So we do some stuff, let's try this. And then, and it just becomes this 
problem solving thing and a curiosity and, and we're communicating, hey, Brian, how do you feel with this? Do you, okay, do you understand? Yes. Is that what you sense too? You know, and, and so you're just, you're working with the person to get the outcome. You're, you're just, you're just the facilitator. You're, it's not about, you know, the ego has to go away. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think there is the balance of, of being able to know it and being confident and, and the best practitioners are confident. You know, I've worked closely with Leahy who developed ART. He's mm-hmm. supremely confident. You know, he walks in and he knows he can fix the problem and maybe he won't fix it, but nine times out of 10, he will knowing it, you know? And, and I, I think that confidence is comes from reps and comp, you know, you know, being competitive with yourself and, you know, never stopping learning and, and just doing your best to like be curious when you go into things. Um, but I do think, you know, mentoring is like a, a clear way to get forward, but you still got to do the reps in your pond, you know, you, and so I always think of it like a big pond and a small pond. You jump into that big pond, go get a bunch of information, take a new course, take a new seminar, go to a cadaver uh, lab, uh, go work with Dan for a week and follow Dan around for a week. And you feel like an idiot by the end of it. You're like, I don't know anything. I might as well, I might as well quit. And then you go home and you go back to your pond and you feel like the big fish in your pond. And so I think that idea of going back and forth between the ponds and never being happy in either one is the best thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, just getting out of your comfort zone, yeah, I think is what it comes zone. down to. Yeah. And then just not being afraid to ask questions. And it right. really amazes me how many people are afraid to ask questions. And I think, you know, maybe it's a, a younger person syndrome who's like, oh, I've gone through all of this schooling and this education. I've got my certification. So when I'm working with someone, whether it's an athlete or a new employee or a patient, like they expect me to know it all. Right. Um, and, I, and I think it's just being able to... I mean, know when you know it, but also to know when you don't and be able to ask those questions of people who have more experience than you, have those reps like you've talked about, or, you know, just can give you another set of eyeballs on something can be hugely, hugely valuable. I think so. And I I always, I always say you can learn something from everybody. Even my, my most difficult, you know, patient or client or person that maybe doesn't really want to be there. They're not that motivated. I'm always thinking, what can I learn from trying to help this person, you know? And if you just kind of figure you can learn something from everybody, you, you go a long way. And now to answer the other part of your question, I spend a lot of my day, like most of my Tuesday is meetings. So I'm meeting with different staff and I'm either working on business problems or we're working on skill sets. And so I, I love to like teach and to mentor and I'm going to spend a lot more time doing that. I'm actually in the middle of just final, finishing a mentoring course for young therapists, actually not even young, just therapists. And they could be acupuncturists, they could be uh, trainers, they could be, you know, ART people, they could be chiros, they could be physical therapists, Any, anybody that wants to like work more in an elite athlete environment or an environment like ours, I've got this course, but, uh, and it's like a passion project for me. I've been building it for a couple of years now, but, um, but I, my staff, my crew in general here, we've, we have some people that came in really high level and I'm trying to build a dream team uh, of practitioners, but I have some people that I've developed from scratch, like during college or fresh out of college or just out of school. And, um, and I love, you know, I love my Tuesday meetings with people where, you know, my one young ART guy, he comes in, he's like, all right, I have four things I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how do you treat these three things that are really hard? I can't figure it out. And we just go through it together and I learn as much as he does, (laughs) but that's like a really fun thing for me to get to see and, and to see this guy, from where he started, you know, nine months ago with us to now, and, you know, he's making great money, you know, he's, he's, he's making more money than he ever imagined he could actually. And, and, and it's not all about the money, but he's just, he's fixing all these, you know, running injuries for people and helping people to live a better quality of life. And, um, he's getting to work with some of my elites as well. And it's just a really fun thing to get to see. Fulfilling him from a number of different angles. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not just, yeah, you're chasing all the, all the levels of fulfillment. (laughs) 
we've only got a few minutes here before we wrap up. So I'd like to end, as I said earlier, by giving listeners some actionable takeaways. So my lead in question to that is what are some of the most common things that you see athletes doing wrong in their training or on a day-to-day basis that land them in here because they need to fix something? Yeah. Whew. That's a loaded question, Mario. <laughs> uh, wrong. I think, I think endurance athletes are afraid of strength training, generally speaking, too much. And they don't need to be, but it needs to be applied correctly because it could be injurious to do it if you do it wrong. Right. You know, but I think like you're an example of this. You started doing strength training. You're running some of your best running ever, right? And mm-hmm. you started a few years ago. And um, I think endurance athletes generally don't don't invest in any of that. And they forget that strength training isn't just strength. It's also mobility, right? Because you, you, if you can do a light to moderate weight deadlift correctly or maybe even a single leg one, you're essentially stretching some of the tissue in the posterior leg as well as you do it, right? And so so it's that's like strength. It's like usable strength through range of motion that's that's going to increase. So So thinking of like strength training as this like thing that they don't need to do, um, and then I see a lot of people that get way behind and they come in here really beat up or injured. And now we got to go back and redo that. Um, I think, I mean, clearly all the overtraining syndromes and the, um, I think people think yoga is going to fix everything. And I just don't think so. I think yoga can be helpful, but yoga is not specific. And it's a practice that was got made to help people meditate and sit in full lotus. And that has nothing to do with elite sport <laughs> or even moderate level sport or recreational sport of running or cycling or something like your hip needs to function differently to sit in full lotus than it does, you know, whatever. So people's idea of like the general public's idea of like mobility or like, Oh, even some of my pros, well, I'm in the off season. Should I do some yoga now? Is that a good time to do yoga? I'm like, well, you're an elite triple jumper trying to jump like 1750. I'm not sure that, you know, a pigeon stretch is really going to get you there. <laughs> so so that's a big bugaboo for me. So like doing like the appropriate types of mobility is something people don't do. Uh, what else? I guess like like nutrition and hydration. Nutrition and hydration I see people doing wrong a lot. Do you think that seriously. ends up affecting injury rates and other things? Or where, where are you going with that? Well, yeah, I think it does. I think it affects body comp. I think it affects inflammatory state in the body. I think it can affect injuries. I think, like for example, if you're somebody that doesn't have great circulation to begin with, um, maybe you tend to, you know, maybe on a spectrum fall towards a, having a little bit of Raynaud's or something where you don't get great circulation in your extremities and you're running 120 a week. Well, you might be more prone to an Achilles issue than somebody that has no circulatory issues. And so like, is diet going to affect that at all? And and it might. And maybe we'd be, you know, maybe it doesn't, but I, I couldn't be convinced that it's not related. I think it's related. And um, and even like, you know, we have a couple really high, I have two of the best sports medicine acupuncturists probably in the country here in our, in our office. And they talk a lot about, you know, we, I'm not, I don't understand Chinese medicine the way that they do, but I know that there's a lot of things you can do with Chinese medicine to look at uh, circulation and things like that in the body. And a lot of that's nutritional, you know? So I think that's very fundamental. Um, inflammatory load can be definitely affected by nutrition. You know, how much sugar and corn syrup and all that crap you're having, that's a, that's going to affect things a lot. And and I, I see that play out with people that are sugaraholics and people that are smokers and stuff. Those things really affect their tissue. The quality of their tissue becomes 
much different, just like in alcoholics, actually. So, so you you can and vegetarians too. You can feel that tissue change in someone that's a, a chronic vegetarian. You know. So yeah, those things affect your tissue and all that epigenetic stuff that we're starting to learn about. I think is really affected by nutrition. And, Would you lump that under, or maybe a lot of what you do here under? alternative medicine of some sort, like some of the Chinese medicine stuff mm-hmm. is, but it's, you know, it's, it's different than the advice and you'll get from some Western doctors that look mm-hmm. at it as hocus pocus type stuff, or even like some of the ART treatment, they're like, no, 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 you should go in and see a physical therapist instead. So I'd love to learn how you navigate mm. that because mm. I know that there are traditional practitioners who just are very close-minded and will say, well, no, that ART stuff is crap. Acupuncture is, is crap. Like right. you just they think need, it's voodoo or something. Yeah, it's yeah. voodoo. Like you just, yeah. you know, you need to rest and maybe you've got to do like these stretching exercises. And they're very generic. And like the average athlete, they don't know any better. They're like, well, this is what the doctor told me. This is what I'm going to go do. Sure. And they never get any better. Well, that's the first problem though. I, I only want to work with people that are motivated. I don't care if you're 70 years old and you're just trying to stand up safely out of your out of your easy chair or you are going to win the Olympic gold medal. I do not give a shit. I want to help you if you want help and you and you decide you want to be here. That's great. But if you are half in it, then this isn't the place for you because <laughs> I've got enough I've got enough people that want to be here. So, uh I I find that when people don't invest in their own health and they don't they don't take charge of their own case. Like if, if you don't even know like what your diagnosis from your doctor is, but now you think you need physical therapy or you think you need an MRI, like you're just, you're not, you're not informed. You need to educate yourself. And so I just want people to be educated and to like seek all the answers that you can seek and find opinions that you trust, you know, and not everybody's the right person. You know, I'm not the right person to help every person for sure. My methodology is definitely scientific and definitely based in a lot of like research and also what I've seen work, you know, a lot of case study, but, um, you know, it doesn't mean it's the right fit for everybody. And so I, I just think people need to like make judgments on themselves. Usually when somebody's like trying to, you know, ascertain if this is good, like, can you explain why it's going to, why it's worked in the past or, or why it may help you? You know, that's a key thing. So, and, and people get caught up in like just listening to what their doctor said, even though the doctor's a GP that doesn't really treat runners. Specialize in this stuff, yeah. right? <laughs> Last thing, knowing what you know now, what would you go back and tell Jonathan Pierce, fifth year at Stanford, who's been dealing with all these stress fractures and unable to run? I would, ooh, yeah, that's a great question. I would, I would tell myself to slow down a little bit, to just chill out a little bit and like, be a little more humble and spiritual about this, the journey and not be in too much of a rush. Uh, and then I would, I would, I would, I would say that I probably most needed to work on more like self-confidence and, and personal power and like kind of developing who I was as an overall person, not just training harder. I think it's a good place to wrap <laughs> things up. Super fun talking to you as always. Thanks for coming on the Morning Shakeup podcast. Thanks, Mario. Great to be here. All right. Another episode in the books. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, or heck, even if you didn't, go to the Apple Podcast app, whatever platform you're listening to this on, and leave a rating and a review. It only takes a second, it helps new listeners to discover the show, and it lets me know what's really resonating with you. 
Also, a big thank you to Aftershocks for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can listen to your music and hear your surroundings. To learn more and save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, visit tms.aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, the editing, the music, all of it. It's all John, and he's a big part of my small team here at the Morning Shakeout. Also, a couple more thank yous to some members of my team, Jeff Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout. You can find that at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 